All right, well, in light of those requests that we've just offered up to God, let's turn to Psalm 71. Psalm 71, and we're going to start in verse 17 and go through verse 21. So that's Psalm 71, verses 17 through 21. And as you're turning there, I just want you to think for a second about what student ministry means to you. What does student ministry mean to you? Because it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Uh, Because a lot of us that are here this morning have grown up in the church and been in a student ministry when we were that age. And so uh, for better or worse, we are carrying expectations from those years into what we think student ministry can and should be now. And so as you're thinking about that, you may say, well, I think student ministry should be fun. Or I think it should be relational. Or I think that it it needs to be built on a really strong uh, team of volunteers. Or I think that it needs to have substance and that we need to preach God's word with conviction. And I would say yes and amen to every single one of those things. But at the end of the day, there, there has to be kind of an overarching principle that we approach student ministry with. And so that's why we're going to be in Psalm 71 this morning. And let me just put it before you now. Here's what I want the student ministry at Double Oak Chelsea to be about. This is what we absolutely must do. We must raise up students to be gospel people. We just prayed that a second ago. That is what it is all about, raising up students to be gospel people, people who understand at the very core of their being that these words that we're going to read from Psalm 71 are true, not just of the psalmist, but also are true of them. That their lives are about experiencing and then proclaiming the goodness and the faithfulness and the power of God. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to raise up those kinds of gospel people, I'm going to need the help of every single person in this room. And even more than that, every single one of us in this room is going to need the guidance and the wisdom and the discernment of the Holy Spirit, apart from whom we can do nothing. And again, in all of that, if we are going to disciple students, if we're going to raise them up to be gospel people, then we're going to need kind of an overarching framework for them to understand the goodness of God. It's not just that you say, hey, God is good. It's also, let me show you why God is good. And we find that framework here in Psalm 71 in verse 18. And verse 18 has a request, a very important request. The psalmist says, O God, do not forsake me. O God, do not forsake me. The entire psalm is going to hinge on whether that request will be granted. O God, do not forsake me. And in many ways, everything that we do, whether we realize it or not, is wrapped up in that same request, in that same concern. Because the psalmist, who was just a person like us, he too fears deep down that one day he'll be abandoned or alone or excluded or ostracized. And let me just tell you, there is no fear that is more human than that fear of being forsaken, of being left alone. And in many ways, there is no fear that is more teenager-esque, right? And there, there are funny examples of that, but we, all, we also have learned all too well in this community this past summer, that the, the middle school and teenage years are, are often the times when, when we are most vulnerable to that feeling of forsakenness and to that feeling of, of unbelonging and loneliness. And so if any of us in this room, but especially students, are going to live lives that proclaim the power of God, 
then we are going to have to answer a very, very important question. The question that that all the other questions hinge on. And that is, from verse 18, how do we know that we are not forsaken? How do we know that we're not forsaken? And we're going to look to God's word for our answer. So if you would look at Psalm 71 with me, starting in verse 17, God's word says this. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together, thanks be to God. So the question is how do we know that we're not forsaken? And I want to give you three reasons that you can know that you're not forsaken by God now and that you never will be forsaken by God. And so if you look at verse 17 with me, you'll see the first one of those reasons, which is simply this, that God has taught us. We know that we're not forsaken because God has taught us. Verse 17 says, Oh God, from my youth, You have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. Church, do you understand what a miracle it is that the Lord has invested time and energy into sharing wisdom, His wisdom, with us about who He is, about who we are, about what this universe that He has created is like, and about how we're supposed to live in it. That is, that is a miracle that the Lord has invested in us in such a way to teach us those things. And not only that he has taught us those things, but that he has chosen to teach us those things in ways that we understand and in ways that we can apply. Look at the book that you're holding in front of you this morning. Do you realize that this is a record of the wondrous deeds and the mighty works of God uh, preserved for thousands of years by Uh, Apostles, evangelists, psalmists, scribes, prophets, all of these things preserved over thousands of years so that we could read the book that God wrote and therefore know how to live our lives with him and in the world. That is a miracle. God has taught us. And God, being uh, completely fulfilled and self-sufficient, in the relationship of the Trinity that has existed from eternity to eternity. God has no need of doing this for us to help himself. God God does not need us uh, to, to do the things that he wants to do, which means this, the fact that God has taught us, it shows us that he wouldn't do that unless he was deeply invested in our lives. God has no reason to teach us all the things that he has taught us unless he genuinely cares about us and unless he genuinely wants to see us flourish through the things that he has taught us, through his kindness. That is what it is like. That is what it means to be taught by God. 
And I know that there are some teachers in this room right now and that you are, are uh, about to have the worst Sunday scaries of, of the year, right? Because you're about to enter into this season again where you meet a whole new crop of students. And some of the students you are going to love. They're going to be awesome and you're going to have a wonderful time having them in your class. But, and I know this because my wife is a teacher and I've heard all kinds of stories about what these kids will do. They're also going to be students without fail every single year that get on your absolute last nerve. And yet, I'm willing to bet that there is not a single teacher in here who has ever taught a child in order to then forsake them. I'm willing to bet that there's not a single teacher in here who has ever instructed a student in such a way that it would leave them abandoned or alone or forsaken or worse off than they were when they came into their class. Even the worst student in your class, I'm willing to bet that you would never, ever do that. And if we can say that of you, a a good teacher but a sinful teacher nonetheless, Right? If we can say that of the teachers in this room, then how much more can we say it of God? Amen? God, who could have done wondrous deeds anywhere in the universe, anywhere in the, the heavenly realm that he inhabits, he has chosen to do wondrous deeds in the world around us so that we can see them. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, he has done wondrous deeds in our hearts. That shows us that God is so committed to teaching us and not forsaking us. And so verse 19 goes on to declare boldly that our God's righteousness reaches the high heavens. And yet, he has chosen to have that same righteousness reach from the high heavens all the way down to us. Teaching us to live in in ways that we can understand, in words through the Bible that we were created to read and to be able to apply. And more than that, in guidance from the Holy Spirit that our hearts, our souls were literally fashioned to feel. This is who our God is. This is how our God teaches us. And verse 19 also says that he has done great things and that no one is like him. And yet, this greatness that God has is proclaimed throughout the world. By who? By us. And even though no one is like God, God has chosen to make us in his likeness, in his image. So church, God has taught us. And more than that, God has not finished teaching us. God will continue to teach us. And yet, the, the thing that we have also been taught beyond just God's goodness and faithfulness, the thing that we've been taught over and over by experience is that life is hard, that life is treacherous, that life is, is full of pain and suffering. And the psalmist knows this too, which is why if you read the verses that come before this, 1 through 16, you'll see that his request not to be forsaken, it's not just something that he decided would sound good. It's not just something that he decided to write down one day. No, this this request to not be forsaken developed out of an experience where he felt forsaken. And so if you read those, those prior verses, you will see that he is begging God to rescue him from the wicked. He is asking God for refuge from his accusers. He is on his knees before God asking for help in the midst of his own weakness. And in this hardship, the psalmist finds hope. 
And because we serve and know the same God, we also find hope. And so how do we know that we're, we're, that we're not forsaken? Well, first, God has taught us. But then second, we know that we're not forsaken because God will revive us. God will revive us. Look at verse 20 with me. It says, you who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. And notice that the psalmist's cautious request in verse 18, oh God, do not forsake me. Please, God, do not abandon me. In verse 20, it is now developed not into a fearful request, but into confident assurance. And not just confident assurance that he will not be forsaken, but also confident assurance that God will actively deliver him from every trouble, from every hardship. And so how does that transition happen? How do we go from a fearful request, from begging God not to be forsaken, to, be conf- to being confidently assured that we will never experience forsakenness? Well, again, we look at verse 19 because the psalmist takes a step back. And what does he do? He meditates on the goodness and faithfulness of God. And in that, he remembers. He remembers how the Lord has brought him through hardship before. He remembers how there was never a moment in his life that he was alone or abandoned by God. That there was never even a second in his entire life where God had forsaken him. Despite his doubts, despite his imperfections and his his fears and his sin, and this is the purpose, one of the purposes for which God teaches us, that, that as we're being taught by God, that when hard times come, we are then able to be revived by God because of the things that he has taught us. And if there is one thing that I want us as a church to raise up students to do, it is this, that when, not if, but when things go south in the lives of our students, that they would know that God has taught them and therefore that God will revive them. And that that would lead them to, uh, to, to run to the Lord for safety and for refuge and for confident assurance, even in the midst of fear. And so if you are trusting in Christ right now, whether you're a student or an adult or whatever you consider yourself to be, I want you to know this. I want you to believe this, all right? The hardships that you face, the most difficult moments in your life, the times when you have felt uh, at, uh, below the floor, you felt so low. I want you to know that what each, moments, what each of those moments is, is really an opportunity to experience the goodness and the faithfulness of God in a way that you have not experienced it before. God has taught us, and the world may bring us low, but that just means that God gets to revive us that we get to be revived by God. And he becomes bigger and and sweeter and more dear to us in those times. And I don't want to act like pain and death are not real because they are. They certainly are. And we all in this room know this. But here's what I also know. I know that pain and death and suffering do not have the last word. They absolutely do not have the the last word because God, who is the healer and the reviver of our souls, does. 
Which leads us then into our final reason that we can know that God will never forsake us. Okay, so we know that God has taught us and that God will revive us. And finally this, that God will comfort us. God will comfort us. Look at verse 21 with me. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. And I want you to see here that God's teaching of us and then God's subsequent revival of us they do lead us to action, right? There's a feeling throughout this psalm of uh, being raised up in order to proclaim who God is to the world, to the generations around us. So yes, God's teaching and revival, they do lead us to action, but they also lead us to something else that is so important and that we must understand if we're going to live this life the way that God intended us to do. And it's this, that God's teaching of us and his revival of us, they also lead to our deep and abiding comfort in God. And this is not the kind of comfort that you're going to feel in a couple weeks when your rear end is parked on the couch and you've got buffalo chicken dip and you're watching football for 10 hours. Although you could, you could argue that that is, uh, in its own way, a comfort that God has graciously given us, right? But this is a better kind of comfort than that. God has something higher and better in mind when he speaks of comfort. This is the kind of comfort that keeps you hopeful and sane no matter what happens in your life. This is the kind of comfort that comes from knowing that you are loved and protected and cared for, not because of what you can do or because of what you have done, but simply because of who you belong to, simply because of whose hands you are held by. That is the comfort of God. And there have been so many times in my life where I have been blessed to experience the comfort of God. And when I was reflecting this week, I thought specifically of a time when I was a student. Uh, when I was growing up, I had a, a, the, the blessing of living in the same house for my entire life, going to the same schools for my entire life. And beyond that, I lived right next door to my grandparents for my entire life. And I had this safe childhood that was full of comfort in a good way. But then when I was 16 years old, here's what happened. In the span of a few weeks, my grandpa, who lived next door, he died. He went to be with Jesus, but he, he died. He's, he wasn't there anymore. And then I found out that my family was moving, not just across town, but across the country. And as this, uh, this young student trying to find my way in the world, trying to understand what it meant to follow Christ, I, I, I couldn't get a grip. I felt like everything that I had ever known was slipping away from me. But in those moments, God extended his kindness to me. In those dark days, he gave me comfort. And let me tell you what that comfort looked like. It wasn't that God came to me with, with a list of things that I needed to do to fix my situation. That's, that's not what it meant. That's not what the comfort of God was like in that moment. No, instead, it was this. It was being led by the Holy Spirit to read Psalm 46. Being, being led by God to understand that I could rest in who he is, to know that I could just be still and know that he is God. And that was, that was the kind of comfort that I needed. It was a sweet and enduring comfort. 
because the circumstances around me were still hectic. There was still grief and pain and loss to deal with, but there was also comfort holding me up in the midst of that. And this is why when we sing that old hymn that we love to sing so much, we don't sing, tis so strenuous or tis so demanding or tis so difficult. No, what do we sing? We sing, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. It is sweet to trust in Jesus and to take him at his word. It is sweet to rest upon his promise and to simply know, even when you don't know anything else, to simply know, thus saith the Lord. That is the comfort of God. And so students, parents, everyone in this room, this is what your life in Christ is about. And so often, in, in the context of student ministry, we talk about um, growing into spiritual maturity. And we're, we're going to grow up and we're going to become adults in Christ. And yes and amen to that. I, I, want, I, don't, I want to honor that idea. And that's something that we're going to do. But here's the secret that they don't tell you about growing into spiritual maturity. Growing into spiritual maturity, all it is, is learning over and over and over how to be a child again. That's all that it is. There's other things, there's other variables to be sure, but in its purest form, all that spiritual maturity is, is that as your life gets, gets more complicated and demanding and expensive, as all of those things happen and the pressure of the world weighs down on you, spiritual maturity is simply knowing over and over that you are a child of God, a beloved child of God, and that because of that, you are always able at every moment in your life to find peace and safety and comfort in the everlasting arms. That's what this is about. That's what student ministry is about. That is what every single ministry that we have here at this church is about. It's that we would become gospel people who understand that at the core of who we are, we're beloved children of God. And verse 21 says uh, that he will increase our greatness and bring us comfort again. And church, I don't know any better way to increase your greatness this morning than to simply direct you to the comfort of God. If you want to be great in the world, you can find that. You can go for it. But if you want to be great in God, all you have to do is come to him as a child and simply find comfort in him. And so God has taught us, God will revive us, and God will comfort us. But at this point, your question should be, what is the proof of all of these things? Because the psalmist says these things, but am I just supposed to take his word for it? And I think that you should, but I also have a reason that I think that you should take Psalm 71 at its word. And the reason is this. You can, you can read this passage this morning, and you can boast, and, and you can find comfort in the assurance of God. Because in Matthew 27 and in Mark 15, there was someone else who was quoting another psalm for a different reason. And what I'm speaking of is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on the cross. And when Christ was on the cross, it was too late for him to cry out not to be forsaken. Psalm 71 was not a help to him anymore. 
He had already been forsaken by the time that he was on the cross. And so what did Jesus cry out instead? It's a different psalm. It's the terrifying words of Psalm 22, which is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, I want you to know that you will never be forsaken by God. Despite your fears and your flaws and your sins and your doubts, you will never be forsaken by God because God's Son has already been forsaken for you. Do you understand that? Do you understand that Jesus endured the forsakenness and the loneliness and the shame and the death of the cross and that he was forced to cry out the words of Psalm 22 in what seemed like defeat so that on the third day when he rose up again that we could be raised up to life with him and that we would never have to cry out the words of Psalm 22 and that instead we could cry out in victory and enjoy the words of Psalm 116 which says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. And so return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. And because of that, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Hallelujah. Let it be so among us that we would walk before the Lord in the land of the living and that we would know that the only reason that we can do that, the only reason that we are not forsaken by God and that we never will be is because God's son was forsaken for us. That is what it means to be gospel people, church. That is what it means to disciple students to be gospel people. Everything that we ever do in our student ministry, everything that we ever do in our church has to revolve around this. And so if you want to join us in this work, and believe me, I pray that you do, in whatever way, big or small, if you want to join us in the work of ministering to students, in the work of raising them up to be gospel people, I may ask you to do a variety of things. So it may be that I ask you to lead a community group, or to pick up supplies for an event, or to, or to join a prayer team, or honestly, I might ask you to come up here at 9 p.m. after Water Wars and help me pick up pizza crusts and busted water balloons. And shout out to the string fellows for helping me do that a couple weeks ago. That it may, it may be that, okay? But what I'm really asking you to do in all of those things is to boldly proclaim to the students in our church with your words and with your life that you believe that there is wisdom and revival and comfort in God. That's, that's all that I'm asking you to do at the end of the day, to show students that the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ show us that we will never be forsaken in this life or the next. That's what it's all about. That's what this student ministry is all about. And the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ are why we got to celebrate communion last week. And that's why as we were celebrating communion and I was standing right over here and it was my first time to get to serve the elements from the table to you all. And it was, it was a huge honor. Just want to say that. Um, 
But as I was serving those elements, I look up and I see Mark Sly coming towards my table. And a lot of you guys may know Mark as a friend or as just the guy who's running sound. Um, But what you may not know is that Becca and I, when we were teenagers, we knew Mark as our student minister. And that we knew him as the one who taught us about the revival and the comfort of God. That we, uh, that we were raised up to be gospel people by him and by, by others as well. And as I got to serve him, those elements, those symbols of the gospel that our relationship was built on in the first place, I could not help but rejoice in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And so that's why I'm in this. It's because I want those moments to happen in our church all the time. And I'm just overwhelmed that God would grant an undeserving sinner like me and like us the honor of carrying this gospel hope that we have, that we would receive it from the generations before and that we would uh, be stewards of it in our day so that we could then pass on that same gospel hope to the generations to come. And that that would go on and on and on until we are all celebrating not the communion feast, but the everlasting feast on high. And until we are all joining the everlasting song. So I want that to be your hope. And I want you to consider that as an invitation as we bow our heads to pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for who you are, for what you've done. Jesus, you are the wisdom and the revival and the comfort of God. It's your life and your death and your resurrection that bring us here this morning. And it's those things that that cause us to do anything in the church or in the world. Lord, you have dealt bountifully with us. May we always remember it. May it never pass away from our minds or from our hearts. That every single second of our lives, that we have seen and lived in and known the goodness of God. We lift up these requests. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.